When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am joined by my co-host, the Iron Man, hey, Tommy Cairo. How you doing, Angel? And... And tonight, uh, we're going to get into Wrestling Archives with Tommy Cairo. So uh, let's get into it right away, Tommy. What do we got for tonight? All right. Well, what we have for tonight is uh, some profiles on, you know, famous people in the wrestling industry. You know, and a lot of the younger people don't really know um, about some of the history. And, you know, being a fan today is not just what's going on currently. It's the history of what's going on currently. And it's, it's very interesting because without this information, you, you're really not getting the, the full picture of, you know, this industry. Um, and in a good education, and especially I recommend anybody who's currently, you know, involved in the, in the business uh, of pro wrestling, I would hope that even at, you know, especially at the lowest level where they're in the schools, um, this is one thing I think is missing. So uh, if we could, you know, educate people a little bit and get them to understand, uh, it's it's really considered um, a privilege to be able to, uh, you know, be a pro wrestler. Um, It was always that way. And um, quite frankly, a lot of the guys that are involved today would never have passed muster back in the day when there was 10 trainers in a whole country and everybody came out of those places. So, you know... uh, the history is just beyond, way beyond what you see, you know, currently. And it's it's great. I mean, we're going to start off with, like, one of the most prolific, one of the most famous, uh, as far as EC, you want to talk about ECW-style wrestling, uh, and the, the early hardcore when nobody was doing it. You know, the Sheik was, was one of them. I, would, I mean, I would think he based most of his career off of some kind of implement, you know, something that was added. And uh, the this Sheik. is the guy that was... The sheik. The sheik. Yeah, yeah usually he bought a fork, uh, the, a, a stick, uh, you know, anything he could find, right? Yeah, but he did have a favorite. I, I don't recall it at the time. All it was was probably a pencil from the from the hotel room taped up with the... Like a little tape. spike. Yeah, a little spike. It could be anything. Use a straw if you wanted to, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, they, can't see from, <laughs> they see something in your hand and then they see blood. And that, that's it. All right, so we're going to start right off with the sheik. Again, for you hardcore people, uh, this is the guy that started it all for sure in this country, you know. All right, here we go. The Sheik. You didn't have to see the Sheik in person to be scared to death of him. 
just sold to the magazine rack at a local newsstand in the 1960s and 70s. And chances are you'd find his piercing eyes locked in a satanic trance, the embodiment of pure evil. Next to his face, headline writers added terror to the the countenance. Wrestler with a flamethrower in his fingertips. The Sheik, mysterious as the night. The Sheik was to wrestling press what Michael Jordan was to Sports Illustrated. The perfect cover image to capture a sport. I love that guy. He gave you a lot of great shots with the facial expressions. These are the photographers that are saying, you know, this is a guy that's easy to capture because he's giving it to you. Sure. He's been, you know, he's making all these faces and he, he knows they're there. Quite the performer. <laughs> that's how he's going to get his gimmick over. He wants those close-up shop, shots with the guy. He's got the thing in his guy's eye or whatever, his mouth. You know, just I once on, saw just... him pound a photographer at the arena. A oh, female yeah. photographer, Linda Rufa. He uh, came backstage and pounded her in the head with a cane. You know, and yeah. she started crying. It was like a, a total shoot. He pounded her like until she cried really talk, hard. Talk I think he total... was headed for me. Was the thing? Yeah. But the t- talk got about a total shoot. He had the heels and the faces over for. Dinner, and they sat in separate rooms. That's the truth. They sat in separate rooms. He, he, they said, so I don't know who it was, but he said to sum up the sheep, you would have to say that he lived, he was and lived his gimmick 24 7. Nobody ever saw him put it in the closet for, for an hour, you know? Right. And that always instilling in his mind, this may be real. You may be in there with him one night and he may just flip out and rip your head off. This is what he, he instilled, which was unbelievable. All right, uh, he was a good bad guy. Now that's there you got right there. Uh, if there is such a thing, now there is, right? <laughs> fans love to boo him. He really, he really drew the emotions out of the fans. He was a great performer during a career that lasted almost fifty years. It's safe to say Edward Farah the Sheik drew as much heat from the fans around the world as any wrestler who ever lived. Whether it came from jabbing opponents with a broken pencil, there you go hurling fire at them, or violently rolling his eyes and tongue as he tortured some poor soul. <laughs> the Sheik had a magnificent heel face. His eyes, he was terrifying to look at. I remember he saw me at the airport, and he put his face right against mine, and it scared me to death. I had about two hours of sleep that night. Veteran star Lanny Popo recalled, legendary manager Bobby Heenan said the Sheik was his favorite villain. The guy started hardcore wrestling. He would stick you with a screwdriver. He threw fire. He even said, plus, he never spoke. He never did an interview. He never spoke a word of English. He terrified people. He didn't take bumps. He didn't have to take bumps. If he had, I'm sorry. If he had the ring, you didn't know what he was going to do. He was the best heel the business ever had. Even into the 1990s, when he was in his 60s, the Sheik could still lunge at a crowd and cause fans to scatter like cockroaches. According to Dave Brzezinski, a.k.a. Supermouth Dave Drayson, who managed him after starting as a writer and photographer for the the Detroit promotion. To go out with him for a couple years was just a thrill of a lifetime. I was always scared to get to death because the heat that guy could generate I never knew what to, what the heck was going to happen to me. Going to the ring was fine, 
but to walk back to the dressing room was the scariest moment I've ever had in the business. Uh, this guy just walks out there and, and scares everybody to death. Sure. Just by his looks. He was, he was gruesome. He looked like a horror character, you know? So and, and even not speaking, sometimes not saying words is, is more intimidating than blurting a whole bunch of bullshit out, threatening people, you know, it's just yeah. like that aura about him where, you know, scary guy, scary serious, guy. Right. Right. Very serious. That's, that's and the part of it. Too much to get over. Yeah. Just be violent. You know, I mean, he certainly didn't have to uh, work an aggressive athletic style. You know, right. Right. The whole time. You know, right. Uh, Some people have their gimmicks like, you yeah, know, his, and, but that's he was the yeah. first of like hardcore, the hardest core, hardcore, you know, yeah. sticking you with screwdrivers and pencils yeah. and whatever he could find. And, and the sheet was nuts. And I was there to attend one of his shows in the 90s. And he was insane. It was insane. Yeah crazy right and no. all the time all the time he was probably you know as soon as he got behind closed doors you know and it went by himself you know he could maybe you know not be not, not be the sheik but maybe not you know but it tells a little bit of, of his uh, upbringing which we'll, we'll go through a little of that uh, Barhat's parents emigrated from Syria to Michigan where he was born in 1926 the family was Lebanese, but Lebanon did not become a separate country until 1943. He joined the U.S. Army in 1944. Now, the Sheik was in the U.S. Army. Like, can you figure that out? Hmm. That's weird, right? You, you would think Sorry. that would come out. You would think that would come out. Crazy. You know, wow. From what I, I understand, is he like, he's Sabu's uncle? Yes, that's true. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but he joined the U.S. Army in 1944 and started training after the war with promoter Burt Ruby, Detroit's office. That was a, a wrestling a promotion right there in the area. While working as a day laborer, with Sarhat's vaguely foreign looks, Ruby started him out as a sheik of Araby, a well-to-do Middle Easterner who incorporated sheik and sultan gimmicks that I'm sorry, what is that? Uh, Well-to-do Middle Easterner who incorporated Sheik and Sultan gimmicks that had bounced around wrestling for years. Okay, so pre previously there were Sheiks. You know, wasn't the first one. Sure, sure. Uh, he wasn't uh, then... Oh, wow. He wasn't then the bloodlust scoundrel that he would become. Even worked on the Christiani Brothers Circus in 1950 and 51. But televised wrestling from Chicago popularized his act, which consisted of attendant Princess Salima, his wife Joyce, adopting Farhat's mother's name, snakes, incense, and endless delay in folding his turban. So he made a big process of folding his, his gear, you know, his garment. Okay. And he had a snake? They have a snake with yeah, him? Snakes, like a snake charming act? Yeah. So, wow. Like, you know how Sabu did? Sabu had the same thing with the girl that just died, Melissa Coates. That's the same gimmick. Did they have a snake? She was like a genie. You see her? No. no. Yeah, did but they I have mean, a Oh, okay. No, <laughs> I was going to say, that would have been pretty elaborate, but. Yeah. A snake's incense and an endless delay in folding his turban. Chicago, Chicago also appears to have been the 
a breeding ground for his crazed look. Years later, Jim Lancaster, a local wrestler, I believe, who got his start in the Sheik's Detroit territory, listened to him describe the, his descent into madness during a talk in a Cleveland locker room. He said that a cameraman in Chicago said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go look at the, you ought to go look at the camera and act like you're crazy and act like you're out of your mind and roll your eyes, that kind of stuff. And they got to talking and he made a deal with the cameraman. I'll be in this corner and I'll do this expression. That's really where it kind of started, as I overheard it, Lancaster said. Through the 1950s and early 60s, the Sheik was a top draw just about anywhere he went. So wait, let's go back to that. So here's a cameraman who, who said to him, you know, go over there and act crazy. And, and, and we'll, take, we'll, we'll videotape it. And that became his, his gimmick because he was one of the guys that would come out, uh, especially in Japan, uh, at where if you were to get hit by a, a wrestler physically, um, you would be blessed. So they weren't running away, the people. It's crazy. And, and you know, he would come out and, and lunge like at the crowd and the whole crowd would go back. So, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. And that's what uh, guys are missing today is that, you're, you know, the difference between a play, okay, and, and TV is that TV, we got the close-ups. We can see all the little stuff. A play, you have to project out, right? They have to see you because you're not, you're not right on top of them. It's no different than the guy would do a gesture where he would pick a guy up like he was going to, or he would gesture, he's the heel. He would gesture to the baby face, point across the ring, and then he would make the leap, like take a guy by the back of his pants and throw him over the top. He would do that physically, okay, mimic it. And then he would shake, you know, dust off his hands. Like, I'm going to take him, toss him out, and I'm going to dust off my hands. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that is something that heels did years ago. Drawing right. the people in because you're not right on top of them. Am I mm -hmm. making that noise when I move my hands? No, you're good. <clears throat> All right, so through the 50s and 60s, early 60s, the Sheik was a top draw just about anywhere he went. At no point was he considered a superior worker. You know that. But his matches emphasized violence and wild-eyed antics. Just one example, he started a near riot in Rochester, New York, in 1961, by knocking out local favorite Elio de Paolo, was like a Bruno type early, with a piece of steel after de Paolo won by countout. Even a so, piece of steel. Champion, a piece of steel. Yeah. yeah. Like some just random piece of metal laying around a building. Oh, I'm, I'm sure the steel. Right. Okay. It was tucked in the turnbuckle, you know, tucked it behind a turnbuckle. Good enough. Yeah. With a piece of metal. Steel. Yeah, a piece of steel. Now, that's an innovator of hardcore right there. Yeah. Well, Seriously. you might have just seen it, lay, seen it laying on the ground. You know, I've often done that, left the ring with a guy, and whenever I had a chance to grab something, why? I'll tell you why. How are you going to drag a guy by his hair from one end of the arena to the other? He's going to let you do it? You've got to be <laughs> hitting him. Right, right. So pick up stuff, and so you're right. This is hardcore before anybody said, you know, move exactly. some furniture. For, yeah. All right. All right. A world champion, Lutez, who had little time for gimmicks, said that she had remarkable drawing power. Fez came to admire his foe during his handful of matches. 
He was a terrific salesman. Fez said on WrestlingClassics.com before his death, once in Chicago, when I didn't buckle to his antics and wanted him to wrestle, he just walked out of the ring and didn't come back. He was a great guy, but not a wrestler. In fact, Eddie Farhad Jr. said that she took refuge from Fez under a bus, prompting headlines that only accentuated the madman image. So, you know, he he lived it and, and you never saw him out of character. And, you know, he was he was scary, to say the least. And on top of that, he, like you said before, he didn't really do anything, you know? He didn't have to. Right, so, right. exactly. <laughs> when you don't have to, it's nice when you don't have to. You have implements to kind of guide you yeah. along. But, I mean, you know, the first in, in the hardcore, the innovator. Yeah. I mean, even though you think you wouldn't have to be cardiovascularly fit, you know, he was jumping around all over the place. He might not have been doing like a lot of moves, but you know, he's in the ring, out of the ring. But when you're chasing up. after someone like a maniac, you know, you do yeah. have to have some kind of a level of some kind of fitness. So yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, so in 1964, the Sheik acquired the Detroit promotion from Jim Barnett and Jimmy Doyle, Johnny Doyle, but put himself on top. Okay, already this is bad. You know, really, it's the truth. That's the beginning right there. It's a, start, a, bad, a bad thing. Not that they didn't do a lot of business, but ultimately that's what drove the business down. And his matches got shorter and shorter, and uh, he was the champion all the time, and people stopped coming. So he acquired this Detroit promotion from Barnett and Doyle, put himself on top, and started a reign of fear along the Great Lakes that's never been equal. He took the U.S. title in Detroit and held it most of the time until his promotion shut its doors in 1980. Working with Toronto promoters Frank Tunney, the Sheik ran off a 127-match unbeaten streak in Maple Leaf Gardens from 1964 to 1974. That's 10 years. Wow. Drawing bi-weekly crowds of 10,000. Every other week, you had a 10,000 crowd. Wow. For matches that seldom ran more than five minutes. He guarded against fan attacks as he was ring by keeping a razor blade in his fingers. He just had the ability to work everybody into a frenzy. He might cut you. He was known to do that. So crazy. Beautiful Bruce. Whom, whom the Sheik helped get working papers so he could wrestle in Detroit. The guy was on fire for years in Toronto. The Sheik probably was at his most infamous when he plucked Ernie Roth, that's the Grand Wizard, the pint-sized voice of big-time wrestling in Calgary and elsewhere, struck, uh, stuck a fez on him, that little hat, and named him Abdullah Farouk, beginning of the Grand Wizard. Dressed in brightly colored mod clothes that made audiences wince, for days of black and white, Farouk became the noble, noble one's mouthpiece on obnoxious, nattering talker, who threatened opponents that the Sheik might just might break out of the in fire next on the next match? Ernie Roth was a trip, wasn't he? He was such a little shit, and he was just arrogant, so arrogant. Said Irish Mickey Doyle, who broke into wrestling in Detroit. The first time I worked with the Sheik, we used to do TV in Dayton, Ohio, way back when. I think he slammed me eight times in a row, and then put the camel clutch on me. Then Ernie Roth comes in and puts the boots to me. This little 130-pound guy, 
He was a great manager, just that arrogance. Now, everybody knows, you know, McMahon, he was the best. Ernie Roth, um, true story, he had a, a, a briefcase. Before anybody had pot from different places, he had a, a suitcase, and it was actually in little bottles and, and labeled. I never seen anything like that. I was like, oh, wow. So, you know, to me, he was the king then, you know. <laughs> to a young guy, you got a briefcase of marijuana from different countries. It's, it's like a dream. I mean, come on. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story. It's like a, a dream come true. It's like landing in your lap, a bag full of weed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, met a, I met a girl. And when you first meet a girl and you're somebody that smokes weed constantly, you know, you don't want to, you don't know if it's okay yet. And you might like her. So you, you try to hide it, right? So then I was at the park with this girl and uh, we were hanging out and we were talking. It was a beautiful day. And I started to say, man, I wish I had, you know. And uh, I stopped because I'm thinking, I, I, you know, I like her and I don't know yet, you know. So she goes, what were you going to say? I said, oh, nothing, nothing. She goes, no, really, what were you going to say? I said, I wish I had a joint. She goes in her pocketbook and pulls out a, a tube, a clear tube, with this like crazy bud in it. And I'm like, the heavens, you know, opened up. Like, See, you oh. never know. And you never know. Rolled, and she rolled it herself. Oh, wow. beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> If, if we can't tell funny stories about the past, what good is it, right? Exactly. It's it's all about rewinding, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's all about all the history we can fit in. Yeah, I, I ain't scared to tell nobody any, anything. You know what I mean? Crap. I'm an open book. All right, so... Uh, you both, buddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she always worked with the job guys. He always went two minutes. He would bite them and speak the Arabic language in fact, the sheet's famous babble, loudly blurted as he manhandled his opponents, was a play on his home era of Michigan, area of Michigan. He was actually saying the name of the city, Kalamazoo. Wow, it's crazy, right? <laughs> Lancaster laughed. He would say it with that Arabic dialect, but he was saying Kalamazoo. Nobody knew what the language was. We bought everything. He worked, it was a work. He worked everybody. His most legendary feud was against Brazil. Bobo Brazil. Oh, my God. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry. I lost my, my, sorry. Um, His legendary so, feud was against Bobo Brazil. Yes, Bobo Brazil. And so uh, the fans, the, uh, I'm really messed up here. Give me a chance. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta, I have this to mark myself, and I don't do it. Uh, Detroit's Cobo Hall where I was there maybe five or six times, they packed the joint. They obviously, absolutely packed the joint. There wasn't a single empty seat. It was really great wrestling, great theater. The place went nuts. The fans were on their feet for 10 minutes. Fans despised the Sheik, and some op opponents felt the same way, saying he tried to hog the spotlight, turning heels into heroes so he could monopolize the bad guy side of the ledger. For instance, when Matt Gilmore got hot at Duncan McTavish in the early 70s, the Sheik tried to squash him in one match instead of letting a feud slowly brew. He wouldn't let anyone else get the heat. That, to me, isn't what the business is about. 
That's, that's a heel thing. right there. That, yeah. <laughs> the, the problem is he killed it. it Should have seen it, you know. Hey, they all fall sooner or later. They're not the WWE or you know, been that's been around these, these companies. You know, they flourish for a few years and. Yeah, we're talking about another time. Yeah, here, but, so it's it's all but, different, you know. But it was gritty, you know. Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, that's the, the element of it that when you went past the uh, book stand and there's a, a eight or nine wrestling magazines out and five of them have bloody images, you know, you, you go right to it. I mean, it's just, it's it's natural. I mean, when I sell pictures at a, at, a, at a, an event I, and I bring some bloody ones and I bring some red, regular ones, I'm always out of the bloody ones first. Of course, that people want to see blood. Uh, if you have a picture, of course, they're going to buy that over anything else because, you know, I just love to see that juice. Uh, now, here's what he would do just to, um, you know, scare people, have that look. I'm turning it upside down and you see that he's just, you know, ripping, he's eating a piece of the, you know, the program. No, crazy. Um, there are other times where I, I've seen he's used, I think it's like, I don't know, chickens or you know, whatever. Um, right, you know, so. I got to say that I took I took a lot from uh, from the Sheik uh, when I actually wrestled, and I used to stab people with forks and really? bite them and bite them all over their bodies, like you know, right. then spit pieces of them out, and that that was like mostly yeah. like, and if I could grab a stick. Something was laying around. I'd always use it, and that was like something you know chic like about me. I I think. <laughs> yeah, and you know sometimes we don't even know, like, or, or consciously realize that we may have grabbed something from somebody else. But I always had to, you know, I could make that go into that look. All the pictures I took. Oh, I carried a fork with me purposely. <laughs> well, it's good to have something just in case things aren't, aren't popping. You know, implements you know. are always nice to use. That's why I love that this uh, wrestling archives is is kind of dedicated to the chic because I love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and really, nobody really tried to copy it. I mean, you know, you had a couple chic Adnan LKC. Um, uh, they weren't forking people in the head. No, they weren't exactly. <laughs> uh, in That's other what we want to see. Yeah, um, in other territories. Farhat's style was strictly non-grata. Larry Matic of the St. Louis office said there was some pressure to bring the Sheik into the city for promoter Sam Mucknick after a Detroit promotional war with Dick and the Bruiser died down in the early 70s. The Sheik was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance, which Mucknick ran from St. Louis. So Sam brought him in. He jumped Pat O'Connor before the match even begun where he nearly had a riot, Sam said. That's it. He's done. That's it, said. So that's one time he can't go back. But that was part of his gimmick. Banned in so many places. You know, banned in 10 countries, 12 countries. It's more appealing to see someone then when you can see them if they're banned in in so many places. Then when you finally see them in that little town on some independent show somewhere, you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to rush there to go see them. And, you know, that's how the guys make their money after they're banned everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but people don't stop wanting to see them. And, you know. You want to see them more then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, like they said, they didn't like that madman part. 
the Sheik stuff was never going to go go here. So never. We had him in twice, and that was it. Never again. Stories about the Sheik shortchanging wrestlers on paydays are legendary. Detroit area fixtures such as Killer Tim Brooks. I love Killer Tim Brooks. I thought he was great. There's just something about that guy. Mm-hmm. I can't even explain it. He wasn't even like a, was a pretty big star, but usually putting everybody else over, but really good. George Cannon and Tony Marino ran an opposition office to him in the, ni- in the 1970s after finding cuts in their paychecks. Jack Reynolds, of G- the voice of TV wrestling, and later an announcer for the WWF, said the Sheik tried to push him out of the scene in favor of his own ring announcer for one introduction against Johnny Powers. One intro, I wanted to get. He and I did not get along especially. In the beginning, he could be a miserable SOB, said Reynolds, who did help the Sheik secure tickets to WrestleMania 1 a decade later. He didn't trust anybody. Now, do you remember Jack Reynolds? I remember, I remember him. I remember him from uh, IWA, came to uh, the New York, New Jersey area as the first opposition of any kind against Vince McMahon in the 70s. Uh, it was uh, Pedro, uh, Luis Martinez and uh, there was another guy that owned the, the company. And they went in a, uh, a big stadium, Roosevelt Stadium in, in Elizabeth. And they, when that came on TV, we were like, what's this? You know, we knew the wrestlers because we read the magazines, but we never saw them, you know. Right, so right. It, was, it, was, it was mind-blowing that we were able to see that back then. You know, today you can watch anything. We, we had to, like, search for it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, though, many of the Sheik's friends and regulars saw a kinder and funnier side. In 1962, Heenan washed the Sheik's car. He was in town for the Indianapolis office. He was my best, my first friend in the business, he said. He befriended me. He talked to me. He gave me his car keys to wash and everything. He would give me a a ride to the bus stop and give me $5. (laughs) That was a lot of money for a kid. Right. $5. Yeah, so we're talking, it's probably, you know, it's probably maybe 50 bucks today, you know? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy if somebody has me 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. They said Mickey Doyle, new to the business, got a glimpse of the Sheik's mystical power one night during a, a driving snowstorm. When the Sheik recommended or commandeered the wheel of an old Ford from crony Mike Porky Pig Lauren for a ride from Kitchener, Ontario to Detroit. It was like a blinding snowstorm going back to Windsor and then over to Detroit. And Porky's driving about 20 miles an hour. By this time, Tex McKenzie is with us. He needed, remember Tex McKenzie? He was a big old cowboy. He needed to ride back. She goes, let me drive. Pull this damn car over, Porky. I imagine that's how he sounded. <laughs> and he pulls over. She gets behind the wheel, and he's doing like 65. You could not see a thing. It was a whiteout. Porky was crying. Tex is taking pictures out. Uh, T- taking pictures out of his wife. This is not me. Sheik happened happened to me before. The Sheik says, don't worry. I'm sitting there. I've been in the business six months and I'm thinking I got nothing to worry about. The Sheik's driving. He's got, he, he'll get us back home in about two hours. It was unbelievable. Right through the snow like Santa Claus and the reindeer. <laughs> you know, people don't realize those trips, man, you know, they take a lot out of you. you know, it really does. Out. You know, you think they had Wawa or, or any of these convenience stores to go in? And it was nothing. 
Yeah, he didn't buy baloney. Yeah, he didn't buy baloney. Lunch, man. Yeah. He said, Breakfast, um, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> yeah. So now, but this is by the mid seventies. The chic, the Detroit office was going downhill fast. Combination of hard economic times and bad booking that kept the aging star headlining long past his prime. The Sheik continued wrestling through the 1980s. It was always a massive draw in Japan and worked his final match in the U.S. in 1994. His health was shot as he climbed into the ring for a ceremony in Japan one last time in 1998. I think he, he did suffer after that, though. He died in January 2003. It didn't happen to mention 1994 was the that he, DCW show that he did. Yeah. And yeah, something, and something happened to him he got at injured. the show. Yeah, he got injured. Oh, I don't know about yeah. that, but I know he injured Linda Rufus' head <laughs> with the banging her with that stick. Really? Well, I oh think- yeah, I think he was after me, and I ran out of the way, and he ended up pounding her in the head with a stick until she cried. Really? Yeah, it was a photographer. She was a photographer for a long I don't time. Know. I mean, who knows? I don't know what happened to him. He seemed fine. Yeah. He, well, he died in January 2003. Okay. And his, fun- his funeral was a perfect testament to the way he carefully guarded his character. The officiating priest called him by his given name just once and by the sheik throughout the rest of the service. You will, you'll still associate his name with wrestling as sons Tom and Eddie Jr. were working to revive his big-time wrestling promotion, and she trained stars like Rob Van Dam, Sabu, his nephew, continuing to headline cards. This guy was the most hated villain in wrestling, Supermouth Brzezinski said. He was a legend, and you're not going to find another like him. So I think it gives me chills sometimes because you don't realize, like, the, the the weight that that man you know uh, holds or held, so that's pretty cool. Um, that was a really nice write up on him. I, yeah. I appreciate how you know that writer actually took the time to do the appropriate research on him and yes. you know, credit him for all the events that he was involved in and the actual innovation of a lot of different. Yeah. Things it was just him at the time doing this yeah. stuff. So he was like a, like a sideshow, uh, yeah. so to say. And uh, other people followed along after him later on. Uh, yes. But you know, he was definitely the first of and the innovator of uh, the original innovator of violence. The sheep. Yeah, and I I can't help but like uh, I never was like I can't say like I was just huge chic fan uh, i'm not I, I i never really said that but what i will say is that i respect the fact that he was able to take make his own gimmick and wrestle the way he made everybody wrestle his way which was one way you know and i think as you would think that that would be like oh man but i don't know the way he was able to pull it off each time you thought oh, maybe this time he's really going to stick the guy in the neck with a, with a fork and make them bleed out in, in, in the ring, you know. So, 
Right. And I'm sure that's what everyone was waiting for. Because, you know, we have the fans we have now, but the crowd back then was pretty vicious. You know, when it was early wrestling, they were vicious in a different way, you know, because it was newer. And, uh, you know, they just they didn't want to expect what to see. But, uh, you know, they they wanted the violence because, you know, that's the way. What were they there for otherwise? <laughs> yeah. I think um, it's not necessarily, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think necessarily it's like they, they, they want it or I don't know. I think they just know where to go if, if, if they do want it, where it's not guaranteed to happen, you know, but if it happens, you know, I, I'll, I'll see it. Was well, back then every single solitary character wasn't a hardcore character, and they weren't running right, around right. with forks or spikes or you know little pipes or whatever. And uh, exactly. the fact that he was the first one doing that, and he could scare people in in the way that he did, you know, really just just puts him in the in the history books as like you know one of the the first horror characters of professional wrestling yeah. really when you think about it and guess what nobody stopped nobody stopped them from doing it they wanted it they booked, they... everyone needs uh, at least one owners wanted to book start them. it off you know yeah but what i used to feel like when i would go in the office uh and sit with luke he was uh you know booking the matches for frankie goodman early early then another guy and uh you know, Frank Goodman of uh, USA Pro Wrestling. Yeah. It would yes. Be either me and Domino, or me and yeah, me and Domino, or me and Manny. You know, it's always that. That's what it was. And of course, you know, you go in there and he goes, you know, obviously I want you guys to move some furniture. And like, you know, you can't say nothing better to me. I'm like, great. You know, I don't want to get a guy in a headlock anyway. You know, move. Being a furniture mover is a nice position to be. And when Luke calls you in office. Let you gives you a, an okay is what he's giving you to do what you like to do because let's face it me and Domino don't want to get in the ring and wrestle right now, how long me was Frank Domino, Goodman uh, running Tommy how long uh, yeah how long has he been running because he's still running to this day USA Pro Wrestling yeah but he was shut he didn't run for years you know he moved from New York and then he he went to Florida he lives in like Disney like Orlando Disney. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you know, uh, Mickey Mouse is outside your door. Like that's exactly. <laughs> anyway, Frankie, I love Frankie. Um, so you know, it was I, I like that because they knew we would do it res- responsibly. We would never grab a fan. We would never let a fan get hurt. You know, I would chase people out of the way if I was going to pick up the uh, take the uh, fire extinguisher off the wall and you know and hit somebody in the head with it because that's what we did. You know. And the sheik, the sheik would chase people, you know, he would just chase them and he wouldn't have to have anything in his hand. His face would just scare everyone away. So subconsciously, subconsciously I was doing it. We were just talking about that. So there it is. I grabbed that, you know, it's great. Now, (laughs) this is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, I'm, I think because of how well he, uh, portrayed it, you know, he got his gimmick over, and that he's a tough guy. His name is Exotic Adrian Street. Oh! One, one of my all-time favorites. Bizarre, bizarre. He's this on guy, my list. <laughs> you know, 
this guy was one of a kind for sure. Um, I always was a big, again, it's a, a, there's a mysterious part to this. There's something that's, you know, uh, and, you know, watching him, you knew he, you knew, he, well, the weird thing was how he was portraying a gay character kind of, but he had a girl with him. Right. Right. Which, Linda. You know, so, yeah, you're, you're, you know, as a fan and, uh, you know. You know, he, he uh, wrote a book more uh, like, like a few years ago or so. Really? Uh, I was actually helping him promote the book, know. On, uh, you know, on social media for a little mm. while. Uh, but, you know, it died down because now it's not new so much anymore. But he did have, uh, you know, he had a lot going uh, up to three years ago. Adrian Street's got a book. So get yeah. out there and look at it. Um, you know, Adrian Street is a great character. And his, his wife, Linda, you know, long, they've been together a long time, long time. And they had one of the first gimmicks that was sort of like, I, I don't know, you read into it like he was gay, but you also read into it like maybe he wasn't gay. Maybe it was just like an S&M sort of uh, act yeah. because yeah. Linda was the first of uh, characters that was like a, a female, like a dominatrix sort of thing. So I think Adrian Street right. was playing more like a slave uh, to Linda more than yeah, him wow. some fruity guy. And I and I, I think this I take that a lot from, I was a big fan of Adrian Street and Linda. Uh, my gimmick later in wrestling be, oh, was a dominatrix. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, I had slaves as my tag team. And I take that a lot from uh, Adrian Street influence. So it's, it's some of yeah, it. Yeah, you see that? So, yeah, Adrian Street, yeah, great character. Think about, yeah, I think about, you know, when, when you might be in the company of someone who's like a wrestling fan and yet maybe never heard of exotic age in the street, you know. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I always picked, yeah, I always picked out, um, you know, a little bit, out, not outlandish, but characters, you know, uh, and, and gimmicks a little bit outside the norm. I've, I always liked that. So he, he fit the bill for sure. Plus, like, this guy was a bodybuilder. He competed in bodybuilding competitions, you know, um, and so his background, we don't even, we wouldn't even know that unless you read about him. So we're going to talk about uh, Adrian Street right now, the exotic one. Did you see that picture I held up? Was him and his father with the coal miner's hat on? Father was a coal miner. So now you imagine, you know, you tell your father you're doing this thing, you know. But I guess he supported him because I didn't hear. I don't think I heard otherwise, but we'll see. All right, I heard a story about him. Um... I heard a story about him at one point smacking the shit out of that. Uh, what was his name? That child molester, the known child molester. Uh, uh, Buck? Not Who Buck. Was? No. If the white guy. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you later on that. But I, I, I got a story about him. When I remember it, I'll tell it. But great okay. story. Go on. <laughs> All right, here we go. Exotic industry. Liverpool Stadium was a rough place. The type of arena where the wrestlers had to fight their way to the ring. It was not a place where Exotic Asian Street found his recently recorded LP, complete with a fold-out poster in much demand. Conspiring with opponent John Cortez, Street decided to try something new. After parading in the ring in one of his fancy outfits, 
Fancy Dan Alpins. Street store that Cortez had a copy of his record. Now, this is, you know, a record that Adrian produced. Uh, he, he uh, though, though he usually tried to never acknowledge his opponent before a match, Adrian gave him a nod of approval for his obvious good taste. Next thing is, he starts to rip up the poster into pieces and throws it all over the place, Street, Street explained. He gets a hold of the record and breaks it over his knee, smashes it up, and throws it to the people. I'm screaming and shouting, going nuts. John, John says, oh, I'm sorry. John says to somebody, get me another record. Oh, wow. People were running and lining up in bloody hundreds to grab records and bring it down to John. They were they were bringing them down, and he was breaking them. So it's part of the, the gimmick, you know, to break, break the guy's records that he, he brought down here. He, he, breaking the, he broke, kept breaking the posters up and, and the records. I made him made more money that night than I had wrestling in about six months on the records just to break the damn things up. Now, I couldn't care less what they did with, with them. I was just interested in the money and getting rid of the bloody things. So, you know, he recorded some real uh, record. He probably had all these you know, stats of these things that they, they gave him. And uh, it turned out that he could use them and make some money uh, using them as early gimmicks. Sell them to the crowd. Uh, it was key to one of Street's uh, philosophies about the business. You've got to give the people a chance to react to what you're doing and give the people a chance to perform, he said. The only difference between the wrestler and the people is that the wrestler is paid to perform and the people pay to perform. Well, that makes sense. You know, especially when people are all signs and became a big thing. You know, everybody, you know, I, I think they were taking them, depending on what they said. We more recently went to these, you know, big events and had signs that weren't, were deemed not appropriate. They would send guys into the crowd to take them from them. So not, not, the, not the best uh, type of situation. I could see that turned into a problem. So he, this, and the thing that I didn't read in here that I read elsewhere is that um, he was, uh, subject to the same type of training in the snake pit uh, with um, Ted Betley. Ted Betley was a trainer in the Wigan snake pit where uh, people like um, Dynamite Kid were trained. So, you know, there's a lineage there to shooters. And that, in fact, Adrian was, you know, he was no, no slouch in that department. A street took whatever bouts he could, debuting in 1957 as Kid Jonathan. Within a couple of years, he was invited to bigger venues and started working under the real name as Nature Boy Adrian Street. But success didn't try, truly find Street until he found his image. Emerging from the dressing room, Street would pause just outside the doorway, allowing the commoners and attendants to take in his long blonde hair, elaborate outfit, and garish facial makeup, complete with embedded sequins and rhinestone. Uh, this is uh, on his face, I believe. Uh, I go to the ring looking like a French poodle, and I carry on like a French poodle. But as soon as the bell went, I'd done my little bit of, bit of prancing about, and the time was right. I turned from a French poodle to a pit bull, Street said. So, you know, he, he met, does that little bit then he gets down to business, and when he gets down to business, he can prove right away that he's adept, you know, and he can do that. And 
if things go wrong, he might be able to twist you up a little bit. Plain Tommy, enough, let, me, let me just, while I'm recalling this here, uh, I just pulled it up on my phone. Uh, who I was referring to was Jimmy Seville, the pedophile Jimmy Seville. When Adrian Street, when Adrian Street found out that Jimmy Seville was a pedophile, he got him in a ring and tuned him up. From really? what I understand. Oh, oh yeah, I, I haven't heard that. Jimmy Seville, yeah. Look it up. Jimmy Seville is Jimmy Seville, uh, a, a huge pedophile in in wrestling. Uh, uncovered about him and the young boys, just disgusting stuff. But Adrian Street tuned him up when he found out about this, and once he got him in the ring. So yeah. bravo, Adrian Street. <laughs> yeah. he's a good man. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, okay. Playing up an unmanly character was a challenge, but Street always knew what he wanted to portray. Interviewers would hone, hone in on his sexuality, but the exotic one would answer ambiguously. Whenever someone infers that I'm effeminate, it makes me want to scream. Over the years, various characters like Goldust, <clears throat> Rico Constantino, used Street's gimmick. In Rico's case, <coughs> excuse me, he actually went to study from the master. In 1969, Street met Linda Gunthrow. Hawker, who would become the woman wrestler Blackfoot Sue as an Indian. And later his valet, Miss Linda, uh, she added some different dimensions. Oh, wait a minute. She was Blackfoot Sue, the female wrestler? That's what it says here, yeah. Oh, all right. I didn't realize that she was, she. that's what she did before, previous to yeah, being his... I don't think she looks like an... Oh, I don't, I don't, okay. I I don't think she has the complexion for an Indian now. Yeah, a lot of girls didn't back then, but they just slapped the headband on and parted yeah. their hair in the middle, you know, gave him some fringe and let him go to it. Push him know. out the door. Who was going to argue? <laughs> the exotic woman would answer ambiguously. Oh, okay, we got that. In 69th Street, met Linda Gunthorpe Hawker, who would become the woman wrestler Blackfoot Sue, and later his valet, Miss Linda. Linda added, added a different dimension and more mystery. She would allow, would allow him to step on her back on the way into the ring, straighten the robe of her perfectionist pansy, and occasionally in, interfere by pulling a leg or bringing out a foreign object. So, you know, she was there to help him win some matches. She was a submissive mistress. Yes. Yeah. You know, submissive dominant sort of character. Yep. I, mean, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, these are pioneers, though. I mean, you know, yes. everything else before that was like, I'm sure, sure throughout history, there was always people that were going towards the edge, pushing the, the, the limit. But Yeah, but there was it. no guys wearing uh, harness, gay harnesses and all of the right. whole face no. makeup and ponytails and no. stepping on their valet. You know what I mean? That was, uh, that was original as you could yeah. get back then. And now everything is just like a poor copy. Yeah, and you know, I know for a fact that more than likely, in a lot of situations, uh, th they took it upon themselves to, to start to interject that type of style, screw the promoter what he what he wants. Just like I, if I go to work for a promoter back in the day, that's not like a, you know, he's got no lineage, he's got no no nothing. He's just just a guy that wants to be a promoter, but he has none of the, the tools he needs. We don't do what he says. You know, uh, we worked for uh, me. And of course not. You work your own match and you do your own thing yeah. because 
If you don't know what he's doing, you know what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> we did. Uh, we told Panzerino they want us to work uh, uh, as a tag team. First of all, we don't. I, neither one of us were attacking people. We didn't care against another team. I said, no, no, no. You split us up, so I know I can have him in the ring because I'm not working with these guys. Right, They're right. Like, and that's what we did. We told the <laughs> one kid he had a little bandage from the night before or whatever. He told the one kid when when he was in there with him, you know, uh, open this up, you know. So the kid hit him, nothing happened. He said, tag out to, uh, for me to get in. Because Tommy, open this up. Beep, I hit him. <laughs> it's like, first. Yeah. Gusher. <laughs> I've you seen know, hit some gushers in your yeah, day. <laughs> but, you know, the faggot kid couldn't even open an already open cut, you know. Right. Sad. Yeah. They didn't like it, so I would have thought that would have been a chance for them to take a cheap shot. You know? So we're rolling up on around uh, nine minutes left, so. Okay. All right. So let me see where we're at here. Okay, so now he's with her, and they're going to take off wrestling. So Street and Hawk set off for the North American market in 1981, beginning in Calgary, then heading to Mexico and Los Angeles before finding a real home in the southeastern U.S. promoters and bookers didn't always know what to do with him. Adrian would do anything for attention. He would have shown his private parts on, on television if he thought it would have done him some good. British promoter Max Crabtree, who was one of the big promoters over there, Um, boy, I can't see how they just completely lost my place. It's my eyes, I guess it is. Uh, Street has no problem explaining the nuances of what he was trying to achieve. My idea of a bad guy is possibly different than a good many others. To me, there's no reason why a bad guy's got to get cheap heat all the time when he's got to growl and scream at everybody, jump in the ring, poke somebody in the eye, kick them in the balls as his first move, and scream and shout until his eyeballs pop out. My way of doing it was to go into the ring and wrestle and show the people what a good wrestler I was. He, he was amazing. Said Rip Rogers, huh? He was amazing. Said, yeah. It, and his, I don't know if you remember this guy, Rip Rogers. He was sure, a, sure. Pretty big star. Uh, yeah. He says, Rich Robert, Rip, Rip Rogers was the heel in a long year-long feud with Street in the Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi areas. You had to go with the flow with Adrian. Me and Adrian never talked over a match, Rogers said. All that mattered was the finish. There you go. And what we were coming back with. The rest was all ad-lib out there. No prearranged bullshit like they, there is today. Yeah, and see, that's when you know how to work. Face. Yeah. I told you, you don't have to talk anything over. It's like all by feeling. Yeah, and a couple times, Manny, like, I tried to get more out of him. He'd be like, I'll see you out there. <laughs> exactly. But, 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 but what about, you got the finish? Yeah, the referee knows the finish. Tell him to tell us when it's time to go home. We'll wrap it up, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it's no. Like the Puerto Rico separate, separate locker room business, you know, like, you'll figure it yeah. out once you get in there. Exactly. Okay, um, so what Rip Rogers was another great talent was the heel in that Mississippi area, and it, again they're they're trying to tell you all that matters is you know the finish and the quality of the match, not like trying to get all your all your moves in and try to stick to 
a set plan. It doesn't work that way. Adrian was a guy who looked like he couldn't bust a grape. And in real life, that's not true, though. And in real life, was probably one of the, the toughest wrestlers around. He said explaining the problems working with street style was very difficult. It was very awkward, different timing, different execution of moves. In the old days when we prided ourselves on having good matches with anybody, Adrian was the kind of guy that if I had a match with Kamala one night, he wasn't limited by what he would, his character would let him do. Adrian was limited, honestly, by what he could do. But he knew exactly who Adrian Street was. There's a paragraph left. By the late 1980s, Street had settled into the Gulf Coast region, where he still resides today. He and Linda make a living primarily by fashioning custom-made attire through their BizarreBizarre.com website. Street also has taught wrestling at his Skull Crushers Wrestling School, which blew away during the hurricane. What a shame. A couple of years back. He still takes occasional indie bookings as well, despite having battled off throat cancer in 2001. Retirement is not on the horizon, he joked. I can't do nothing. I'm not intelligent enough to do nothing, meaning other than, than wrestling. Right, then he has to do something. If, if you go check out, actually, him and his wife, Linda, have an amazing uh, company that they make tights, wrestling tights through. Just doing really high-quality, amazing stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if anyone wants to go check out, you know, Adrian Street and Miss Linda's, uh, you know, clothing attire line, do that if you need wrestling tights. Uh, so I thought that was a, a, a great episode of Wrestling Archives. My so some of it's my two favorite people actually. We we yeah. got the cover, which was great. So if you didn't know a, a whole lot about these characters, hopefully uh, you know the Sheik and Adrian Street a little bit more now. And um, you know that's our goal here to just uh, bring you back to the past and. Make you, uh, if you don't remember, just rewind it so that we can re-educate you on his, the history of professional wrestling. So, uh, anything else to say before we close, Tommy? Uh, no, just that, you know, um, sometimes the, star, the stars uh, that you don't know about were so much more influential than the ones you do know about. And uh, in, in reading, like, these, these uh, excerpts, you know, you get to learn that, the further back you go, the closer you get to the originator, okay? Because everybody's done these everything before, gimmick-wise, you know. So when you find a couple of people that don't fit right into a category like these, uh, Linda and, and, and uh, Adrian, I mean, you know, they're just uh, unique. They don't come around every generation. But that's, that's basically what, what I'm trying to say. They, they came and went, and if you don't read about them, you won't know about them. And if you don't know about them, you're missing something. Because this is the foundation that wrestling was built on. These are all the originators of, of the business and the history of our business. And if it wasn't for them, there would have been no us and no you. So just remember that. And uh, thank you for joining us on Wrestling Rewind uh, this week for Wrestling Archives with Tommy Cairo. And we hope you'll join us again uh, next week. We are here every Sunday at 7 p.m. on the Monty and the Pharaohs Network. So please uh, join us next time as we uh, 
I think we have an interview coming up next. So stay tuned for that. And until the next time, have a nice night and a nice life.